uh, week have been praying about and just reading through, you know, I do this reading plan. I've, I've talked to some of you about it before, but I, I do this reading plan where I read through uh, the Bible more often than I ever have in my life. And I've, I've told you this probably too. I'm going to keep doing it. I've, I've enjoyed it so much. And I encourage you to try it out. It's Dr. Horner's Bible reading system. And you can find it a lot of places. You can go online and just Google that name, or you can look in version. They have a version version of it. And so that's what I do every day. And as I go through that, it's, it's just amazing to see the connections in Scripture. So you're reading a chapter, and it sounds ridiculous at first because you're reading a chapter from 10 different chapters every day, which I know is a lot. But once you start doing it a while, it's, it's not. It's, it just it flows. And there's some days where you're thinking, I don't think I have time, and you can catch up later or, or maybe the next day. It's, not, it's, it's, it's really about your growth in the Lord. It's not about completing a certain amount. you know. So please don't ever get hung up on that. It's not like you... You know, anybody's checking and saying, oh, you didn't read all your chapters today. Well, actually, that's true, probably. I thought, I didn't, you know, when I said that, I thought about that. I thought, well, Clarence is probably checking because we're friends on Facebook, um, on the View version, and, and you're doing the same, the same uh, reading. Are we on the same cha- uh, chapters? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you were checking. I wasn't checking. Oh, that's funny. Well, anyway, I, let me just do a little plug here. I met with Tim Davis uh, last week. And most of you know Tim. Um, he, he also, Deanna, struggled with that neuropathy. And he is all past that. And uh, he is going to teach a class starting in January. And this guy, he's... How many of you know Tim? Tim Davis. I'm going to talk about him since he's not here. He is so brilliant. It's just fun to be around him and just kind of spar mentally with him. But he... How many of you know he's a computer programmer? I mean, that's what he does. He's, he's amazing that way. So what he has done, he, he, when I told him about this Bible reading plan, he says, well, I have my own Bible reading plan, which he did. And it was on computer, and it was very similar to Dr. Horner's. So he started doing Dr. Horner's, and then he developed his own, and his Sunday school class is going to be based on that. And I really like what he's done because, well, we can talk about it later, but I really like what he's done with his Bible reading plan, and that'll be an exciting thing, and he's going to teach a class on that starting. But getting back to how my introduction here... As I've been reading through Scripture, and there's parts of Scripture that we are more familiar with because maybe, maybe they, it speaks to us more, or maybe the section of Scripture we're reading is something that's more familiar, or maybe has a Bible story connected to it, or maybe it's just one of those quotes that we know, you know, that you know that, but you don't always see the entire context. But when you're reading, you know, that entire chapter over and over, one of the things, I mean, a lot of things stick out, but one thing that has stuck out to me in reading the book of Acts over and over and over is God used those apostles, and, and the, the scripture specifically says that God gave them the ability to do miraculous things. And I'm reading that, and it says he gave them the ability to do this. And, and as you read through that, you think, I've prayed for people and seen them healed. I've seen miracles, and, and not a lot, but, but a lot. You know, I've seen miracles, but not as many as are recorded there. And someone might say, well, Pastor Dennis, you got to realize, maybe not. I mean, you, you take a book like the book of Acts, the church was being built. God had a special anointing for that time period. And I'm, I'm fine with you saying that. That's fine. But the thing is, if you would turn in your scriptures with me, if you can keep up, John 14, 12, or you can just listen and trust me, I'm reading it correctly. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works 
because I am going to be with the Father. That is a challenge. Now, was he talking specifically only to the disciples? But even then, if that's what he was saying, I would argue with you. And if you were to compare what they did with what Jesus did, yes, you know, Peter raised someone from the dead. They, no one walked in water again, as far as we know. Um, you know, there was a lot of people healed. And there were some interesting healings where even, even Peter and John's shadow would pass people and they would be healed. At times they would send them uh, cloths and they would pray over them and those would, people would be healed. And that's the only examples in there that are kind of unusual. The rest of them are, are probably healings that we'd be more familiar. But it still stands that Jesus said that we would do greater things. Now, let me just stop right there. Because for some of us, and I'm, I'm one of them probably to some degree, when I read greater works, you know what I'm thinking of? Of course, the walking on water thing's not important, right? Nobody's trying to do that. We're not doing circus tricks here. I want to see people healed. You know, and Jeff, I thought of you as I was writing this because Jeff and I have had conversations about this where we're frustrated. Why, why can't we just walk over to center point and just go room to room to room and clear out that hospital? I mean, it really does bother me when I'm there to see somebody and as I'm walking by those rooms and I'm, I, I try not to look in, but I can't help it sometimes because you, as you're walking, you just... I mean, you see somebody, and my heart thinks, I just think, God, can you please heal that person? I don't know what's wrong with them. I just, I just look at them, and they look, they need help. You can tell they're in pain or not feeling well or for whatever the reason is. I want to see them walk out of there. Not, and not, I don't want anybody to know who it was. I want them to, to know it was God and God alone, but I want to see us do more things like that. So when I see greater works, that's what I'm thinking of. Not manna fallen from heaven, not, not you know, feeding the 5,000. To me, those, those would be cool, but that's not, to me, wouldn't be as much of a gospel witness. But let me, let me at least also say that doing those kind of things were important to God. But I'll tell you, the biggest miracle of all, the greatest work of all is someone's salvation. Yes, healing is important, but the salvation is the most important work. So when I read that, I have to hold back just a little bit because what Jesus was talking about, he was talking about those works that he did, and he does call those works, but it was more than that. So don't ever limit it to just those things. Make sure you, just, you also include people going to heaven. But let's, let's talk about that. Why don't we see more of those kind of things? And maybe you've had this discussion with people like I have and you know, you might ask yourself, is it, is it that we don't need it as badly here in the United States? Because I've been in other countries where, where it seems like the Spirit of the Lord is moving more demonstrably like that than he does here. Is it possibly that we're just so comfortable and we have it so well that, you know, we're not in need like in some places? I've talked, I was, remember years ago, I was talking with a pastor about this, and he said, he said, well, it's great. See, in America, people believe in God. But in my country, we depend on God. <laughs> that was really challenging. Because it's really easy in America to live your life and not need him. You can be very comfortable and you can... Now, of course, there's parts of our country that aren't as comfortable as others. But for the most part, we have it way, way, way better than any part in the world. And it's easy to go on and just live like we're living. 
I mean, every day that we live is not a challenge. And you've heard it said before. I mean, I've, I love when I'm saying, talking to somebody, I'll say, how are you doing today? And they say, oh, just another day in paradise. You know, sometimes they're being facetious because they may think their life is tough or something bad had happened. But the fact is, compared to most of the world and certainly compared to all of human history, this is paradise. And we do live in paradise. And then at the same time, I think, as much as I would like to see moves of God like I'm describing here, why is it that we can't even seem to get along with each other? Even people we know and love and friends and family. You ever heard that joke about, you know, we need to pray for our unsaved loved ones? You ever heard that? And our unloved saved ones? Have you heard that one too? You catch that? Unloved saved ones? Okay. Let's go back just a little bit though. I want to take a look at one specific part of this. I don't intend in this one sermon tonight to address all the reasons we don't see God moving the way we want him to see. What I want to do, though, is to take us personally into a place where we can at least explore for ourselves that kind of relationship with God. So let's start at Jesus' baptism. Something very unusual happens there. We see the picture of the Trinity for, for the first time in the New Testament. And we're, I'm going to have us look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21. It says, one day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And the voice, a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great, great joy. What happens there is God publicly affirms Jesus. He puts a stamp of approval on Jesus. Now, up until this point, really, his public ministry hadn't started, but something changes that day where God publicly says, I approve of him and I'm proud of him. And we see that the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Now, some of you who maybe like to talk theology, you might wonder, does that mean he didn't have the Holy Spirit before that moment? Or you may wonder, was God not pleased before then? Or you may wonder, did he not do any miracles up till then? Or what, what was the deal? Was it at that point that he was released to do miracles? And my answer to you would be, we don't know. We're not told those things. We really don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know. Now, there are some, we call them apocryphal books or books that were never included in Scripture. And they were, most of them were written hundreds of years after Christ that credit him with like restoring a bird to life as a child and doing some kind of weird, selfish things like that, uh, which, you know, you think about him as a child and you wonder, would it have been tempting for him to do a miracle or if that was even part of the deal? But then if you fast forward to Jesus' ministry, especially in the book of John, where he turns water into wine, remember his mom comes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. You need to take care of this. And he says, I love this in the King James, he says, woman? He called his mom woman. I tried that once. It didn't go over well. But um, uh, woman, (laughs) my time has not yet come. And what that tells us is that he had a sense of when his public ministry should and would begin. And he wasn't taking this power that he had lightly, and he wasn't using it frivolously. And it wasn't something, like I said before, for parlor tricks. It was very important. that, And he used these, in fact... In one of the Gospels, it says every one of these miracles is called a sign. He used them specifically to lead people into faith. They had purpose. Now, there were times where he had compassion on the crowds, and he just healed them all. But most of the time, the healings that he did were based on, and the purpose clearly was so that people would would deepen in their faith. 
So the first thing we see there is God publicly affirms Jesus. And then it says that he is full of the Holy Spirit. Now, being Pentecostal, an assembly of God, automatically I know what my mind goes to is speaking in tongues. But he didn't do that right then, did he? It wasn't really talking about that. But for us, a lot of times our context becomes tongues when what it's really talking about is him being full of the Holy Spirit. You realize you will be full of the Holy Spirit where the, I mean, tongues isn't really the issue there. The issue there is being full of his spirit, having a relationship with God, which fills you up to the point that you are full to capacity and running over with his spirit. It says he's full of the spirit. And, in, and so we read there in Luke chapter four. So the next chapter after, after we read that he was you know, baptized, says, then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, and he was led by the Spirit. And one version says he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness or the desert where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. And then we read through the temptation. I'll just read it for us just to give us a little context. Then the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God... Tell the stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. First thing I want to mention to you here is or to point out to us, is that when he started this with the enemy, what did it say? He was full of the Holy Spirit. I also just as a caveat want to point out, what did, how did Jesus communicate with him? Always scripture. He just responded to everything with scripture. He didn't argue any of the minor points, which if I was Jesus, I might have argued with him. I might have said, oh, really? These kingdoms are yours to give to me? After I create, I mean, you know, he, Jesus didn't even play with that. What he did specifically was quote scripture back to him. And that tells us a lot of things about Christ. One is that he, um, he knew the word. He knew the scriptures. And some of you might think, well, it's got a little cheating because he helped write them, which is probably true. But for us, you need to be prepared. You need to know them. You need to be awash in them. You need to cover yourself with them. You need to be just, and it's not about knowing more than anybody else. It's not about Bible quiz and competing. It's not about impressing anybody. It's about having that word in and part of you so that whenever something comes up, what your first response is, comes out is scriptural, a scripture. That should be the first thing that comes to your mind. And then if we read the very next uh, chapter, verse 4, and we go down all the way, the book, I mean, chapter four, go to the next uh, verse, which is 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power, and reports about him spread quickly throughout the whole region. I just think it's interesting that that section of scripture starts saying he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then the, the end of that scripture section says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. 
what is that? What is that about? How does that happen? But let me just, let me just draw, a, draw a kind of make a math equation. Can we do that in church? I know some people think math is of the devil, but let me just do this. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit and driven to or experienced time in the desert, you just may end up with power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that may sound, that may sound uh, like contradictory to you, but let me, let me take you there for just a minute. Um, as we look at this, he was, he was sent into the, into the wilderness. He was tempted by the enemy. It didn't affect his spirit. For a lot of us, we think if we are in a desert place, our spirit's going to suffer. His did not. And again, I know some people might say, but he was God. Yes, he was. But the spirit that raised him from the dead lives in us. You, we have him in us. So he was in the desert. He was tempted by the enemy. He fasted and he was full of the Holy Spirit. I think there's a connection there. I think there's something for us to learn there where most of us would resist and fight and dread and complain and worry ourselves sick about being in a desert place. I'm going to challenge you to embrace a desert place because that may be the very place that you need to go to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, I'm not talking about tongues here. I'm not even talking about the gifts of the Spirit. I'm talking about you being filled with Him. I'm talking about you having an experience with Him that can only be had in a place like that. Now, there was fasting involved. I don't know how many of you have ever fasted for a long period of time. And I know there's times as a church we will call the church to fast. And I encourage you to participate when we do that because I think there's even additional power and additional uh, growth that we can have as a body of Christ when we do that as a corporate body. But personally, I encourage you to experience that. I encourage you to do that. Because there are things, even as we read, I forget even if it was Sunday or maybe even the last Wednesday, where Jesus said these, these things, some of these only come out with prayer and fasting. There is strength in that. Now, I'm not talking about anything magical. I'm not saying that it's something that you add to your Christian faith to gain power. What it is, it focuses you more on him. So let's get to this for a second. The scripture specifically said, when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. What does that mean? You know what it means? He's not done. He's not done. He never stops. He never quits. He never gets tired. All he does is change tactics. He changes intensity. He just changes, but he doesn't stop. You might think, and you may have, have thought that when Jesus went through the temptation, that that was it just three times. Three times he was tempted. No. The Bible clearly says that he was tempted in every way that we were. What that tells us is it was a continual thing. Yes, the enemy left him at this one time, but he was coming back with another temptation at another time. And we don't know what those were because we're not told what they were. But I know if Jesus was as human as, as I am, I mean, he was God and human both, I'll bet you there were times he was tempted to do other things or to escape or to be done, or maybe he was tired, or maybe he was fed up with the Jewish leadership, or maybe when, he, when they were you know, beating him and he, in the physical sense, was close to the end, he might have thought, okay, okay, I'm almost done. He might have been tempted, but he didn't give in to that. The fact is, the enemy of your soul will never stop tempting you. You may overcome one area, 
but just get ready because there's more coming. I have a good friend. He's, he always says, new level, new devil. That's what he says all the time. New level, new devil. Because it seems like as you grow in your faith, you may overcome some things and you may think, I can't believe I ever fell to those temptations before. But now there's other things. Now it's so insidious. Now you're prideful about not falling to those temptations. And now you're there. It's just so crazy how that works. It could be so many things, but it's all going to happen. And what's really sad about our human nature is that old temptations can come back too. We, we can start thinking about and ending up in old temptations also. Let me, let me just say this also about the desert place. I believe that for some of us, the desert place is really a training ground. It's a place where God can get us and in a place where, where he can work on us. You know, again, Dave Ramsey says, if you want to live like no one else, you have to live like no one else, right? And if you do the same things and expect to get the same results, that's insanity. So for a lot of us, we don't ever want to go into a desert place. And maybe you've noticed, not a lot of people live in deserts. Have you noticed that? Certain people go there or live there, and they want isolation and they want solitude. But for some of you, a desert place is going to be a training place where you, you're, you're in there And instead of complaining about where you are and fighting it, if you open up to what God wants to lead you in and speak to you about there, it can be something different than than you've ever experienced before. And if you'll notice, a lot of Bible characters had to walk that way. Specifically, one I want to look at briefly is Moses. We looked at him quite a bit a few months ago, but I want to take just a couple quick looks at his life. I think, you know, as, as I was reading through the book of Exodus not too long ago, it, it hit me. How many of you have seen Yul Brynner's Moses? Remember that? You've seen him? He, he portrays him in a way that I, I wondered. You know, I've seen those movies as a kid, and I, I used to think, ah, oh, that's not how it was. But just recently, when it was on this last, um, this last time it was on, I showed the kids, you know, because I thought it would be fun for them to see the big chariot race and all that stuff. Well, that's, that's been her. But anyway, we were looking at the, the, the Moses scene. And you know what struck me about him? Didn't he seem kind of pompous and arrogant? And I thought, you know what? He could have been that way. If you think about how he was raised, raised in luxury, he would have had fawning assistants taking care of every single need he had. He had nothing to worry about. The best education, the best food, the best accommodations, slaves everywhere. You know, that gets to you sometimes. I mean, none of us have ever lived like that, but... The fact is, as you live like that, you start to think you deserve that. You start to think that you live by different rules than everybody else or that, you know what, I don't have the same uh, things. I'm just different. I'm better than everybody. So with that kind of a thought in mind, let's read from Exodus Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. It says, many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. And during his visit... He saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. I have read this a lot of times. I've seen it depicted a lot of times, seen Prince of Egypt, the cartoon, seen the movies. You know, somehow I thought all along in my mind that he killed him by accident, that he was, he was trying to defend the Hebrews and just being rough 
and accidentally killed him. But it really pretty clearly, it, it really looks here like he did it on purpose. And maybe he had to because in defending the Hebrews, that would put him on, in league with them. And maybe he didn't want to be that closely associated with them. We don't know for sure. But if he's going to look around and then kill him, it says he killed him. And I wonder, who does that? Who does that? Someone who thinks they can get away with it? Someone who thinks they're above the law? I mean, after all, he was a prince of Egypt. I wonder about that. I wonder if there was a little pride that had slipped in there and he thought he was too good. So then verse 13, the next day, Moses went out to visit his people again and he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you being up your friend? Moses said to the one who started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid and thinking, everyone knows what I did And sure enough, the Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. And then if you read further in the story, by the time he comes to the burning bush, his response to the bush is, and to the voice in the bush, to the Lord speaking to him from the bush is, who am I? There's a change there. There's a certain humility that he found in the desert. And can you imagine what his life would have been like? 40 years in opulence and then 40 years herding sheep in the desert. A desert place. That had to be humbling. To have been somebody and to be nobody. To have been surrounded by servants and now you have to do everything for yourself. To have water at your beck and call and probably the fruit and the best of everything, and now to be scrounging in a desert land. Think about that. I think he gained some some humility that he did not have before. A trip to the desert can be fun. Anybody ever been to the desert just to check it out? It can be pretty. I mean, it's certainly pretty when when the sun, the haze, just first breaks through on the desert. But it's way more fun if you have air conditioning, I'm just saying. And after a while, a walk in the desert gets old, and it's nice to get back in your car. But if you don't have that luxury, and you have to really deal with it, and you have to be there, that changes things a lot. Looking at Deuteronomy chapter 8, this this comes at a point where... um, well, let's just read it real quick. quick. It says, be careful and obey all the, can- the commands I'm giving you today. This is Moses you know, speaking from the Lord. Then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord, your God, led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. And just to help you know, quickly do the math there, he had already done 40 years. Then he walked 40 years with them. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. I wonder if he thought about, I did this too. I had the same experience. A food previously unknown to you and your ancestors, he did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. I wonder if, the 40 days Jesus spent was, I mean, 40 is a, you know, the, the Jews are into numbers like that. And he quoted this verse when he was speaking back to the enemy. For all these 40 years, your clothes did not wear out. Your feet didn't blister or swell. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child 
The Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. Humility. Some of us need to learn humility in that place, in that desert place. And I'm not talking about humility like none of us are kings or born like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a humility that we need to learn that God needs to teach us. And sometimes we need that. Something else we need to learn in a desert place is to give God praise and thanksgiving even when it hurts. Even when it hurts. Let me tell you this. If you can learn to praise him when it's tough, it'll be so much easier to praise him when it's good. There's always going to be something to stop you from thanking him and being thankful. There's always going to be somebody you could compare yourself to and see that they've got it better. Or There's always going to be an excuse to be angry, but the fact is he will bless you. And if you can learn to, to bless him in the middle of that, he will grow you in that. I'm gonna, I want to take you quickly to Hosea. If you know the story of Hosea, that was an interesting story. God uses this prophet, tells him to find a harlot, to marry her, and he uses that as a living example of how the children of Israel kept leaving him and forsaking him, and then he kept going and pursuing her. And in this one verse, Hosea 2.14, it says, I am now going to allure her and lead her into the desert, and there I will speak tenderly to her. God can speak tenderly to you in a desert place. A place where other distractions kind of fall away. It's interesting, when you're, when you're comfortable, you're distracted a lot of times. You're not, it's, it's easy to be distracted when there's so many things to choose from, but sometimes when you're in a desert place, the choices are fewer and fewer. I've been in a lot of deserts. You've grown up in the Southwest there's a lot of times where you're walking and you'll see something and it'll be a, a scraggly little tree. I put a picture of that on Facebook today, on the church Facebook, of a, of a tree that just looks pathetic. But in the setting, it's gorgeous because it's the only thing there. It's like a twig in the middle of all this sand and rock. And because of that, because it's solitude, it has a beauty to it that it wouldn't have if it was surrounded by, by evergreens and and oaks and tons of other trees. It wouldn't look as beautiful. And I think there's times where God puts us in a desert place because he needs to isolate us down and to focus us so that we can hear him a little bit more clearly. A little bit more clearly. Other voices can be, can be silenced and we can hear his voice more clearly. Christine Kane, she's a real popular Christian speaker now. She said recently, I saw this quote, and it just it was awesome. It says, sometimes when you're in a dark place and feel like you've been buried, you've actually, prop- you've actually been planted. I love that. We think that God's given up on us, and he's just got us stuck somewhere. And the fact is, he's actually planted us for something greater. The children of Israel, as they were you know, coming... They were coming through the, that desert place. There was a time where they had disobeyed God so many times, and this is in Exodus 33, where God comes to him and he says, I'm going to still be your God. I'm just not going to travel with you anymore. It's almost like he said, I can't do it anymore. You've tried my patience too many times, and I will not be with you. I'm still your God. I'm just not going to be with you. And I love how Moses countless times steps in 
And then he, he just he advocates for the children of Israel. And here's what he says. He goes to God and he says, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and your people, if you don't go with us? And here's the part I want you to grab hold of. For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people on earth. Lord, if you don't come with us, what will distinguish us except that your presence goes with us? That really should be the cry of our our heart too. And I'm not talking even about it as a church. Of course, as a church, I'm talking about us personally. That should be our heart as we cry out to him. God, I want your presence with me. I want a relationship with you that is so deep that I sense and know your presence all the time. For some of you, it may take a wilderness experience to get to that depth of experience with him. For some of you, it may mean that you fast a period of time with him. And I've heard, I've, 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 I've fasted, I've talked to people, I know people who fasted, you know, even 40 days. And I guarantee you, the time you invest in that will reap benefit in your relationship with him. It will. We should be a people of his presence like the Israelites needed to be. Moses didn't want to go anywhere without his presence, and I don't want to either. The thing I want to challenge you to do is perhaps you have been in a desert place or you've been so afraid to be in one, but I want to challenge you to embrace the desert, to actually embrace it in such a way because you know that it will result in a relationship with God that you could not get in any other way, in any other way. Now, of course, we love the high experiences. Even that last song we sang again, God, we want your presence. And, and I sensed it in this room, and I love it. And that is fantastic. But there is more and deeper places that God wants to take you, and it, it will happen outside of a place like this. It will happen for you when everything seems dark and things are going wrong and you call out to him and you fast and you pray and you seek him and nobody else knows, just you and him. And you steal yourself away and you have a relationship and moments with him that are just between the two of you. That is golden. Nothing can replace that. That gives you a sense of his presence in your heart and your spirit that will carry you through anything, through desert, through mountains, through high times, great times, bad times, drought, rain, everything, everything that the Lord, that the world brings, every every experience that you have, that will carry you through all of that. David, could you put some music on for us? As a Christian, I think our, our maybe unexpressed goal is to constantly be growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. But all of us know that in real life, we grow and we, we have ebbs and flows and ups and downs. I think there's times where as Christians, we feel like if we're experiencing kind of a down or maybe not as high of a high, that we've somehow missed something with God. And that might be true. But I want to encourage you that that's not always true. Sometimes that's just the normal flow of our spiritual life. 
And I want to encourage you to embrace that time. I want you to embrace and to seek to be full of his spirit. And again, I'm not even talking about the fruit of the spirit or the gifts of the spirit. I'm talking about you being full of him. The goal in our Christian life is relationship with God. For us to have an authentic, truthful relationship with him that goes beyond anything else. The rest of that, all, those, all of that is just on top of it. And that is fantastic. And we, we also uh, reach out for that. But the goal is always going to be to grow closer to him through whatever is happening in our life. So Again, I challenge you to embrace the desert tonight. Would you bow your heads with me for a minute? I want to pray for you. And my prayer for you is that wherever you are in your walk with Christ, that you will go deeper that you will grow deeper. I get, again, I have that picture that, that uh, Frank, Hosel sh- or Frank Hinkle shared that he felt was a, a prophecy from the Lord that he is calling all of us to go deeper. No matter how deep you are now, he wants you to go deeper. You may be deeper now than you've ever been in him before, but go deeper, there's more of him. You may have been deeper and then kind of gone more into the shallows and he's calling you to come back to that place. Father, we reach out to you tonight, and we want that from you. We want more of a relationship with you. God, some of us are in a desert place, and it feels...